You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. It's very easy to stay motivated in ministry for all of us when things are going well, isn't it? In contrast, however, though, adversity can make it easy to lose that energy. It can make it easy to lose that momentum, that sense of momentum. It can make it easy for us to just kind of get distracted or, or, or hold up a good, and, and, and keep from being engaged. And if you've been in church very long, you've probably experienced both seasons. There are seasons where it's just, it's like we're doing the work and the fruit seems to be exponentially larger than the, the work we're putting into it. And it's exciting. We feel like we have the Lord's blessing and there's, there's energy. And then there are those other seasons, and sometimes we experience these as well, where it feels like we're working and we're working and we're working and we have very little to show for it. And when we get in that kind of situation... There are a couple of different dangers that become available, become opportunities. One of those dangers is pragmatism. That just means we got to do whatever it takes, no matter how theological, theologically, no matter how little integrity it has theologically. Like we just got to do whatever it takes. And this is when you get pastors like dressing up like scuba men on Sunday mornings or something like that. You want to, you know, or riding a motorcycle in or like just gimmicky Christianity, right? Maybe they'll show up. If we do something crazy, like for a circus or something, pragmatism. The other danger, one of the other dangers, we could probably name a lot, but we'll just settle in with a couple of them here. When we get discouraged, it's very easy to just, just stop. Inaction becomes a very real danger. Like, like here we are, we got to kind of preserve what we've got, and if we make any adjustments, and like it might, somebody might get mad and move it, like go away, and we just, that, that dance, like we just can't handle any more of that. And so adversity can put us in a position where we just do things that are very unwise, whether it's unwise action or unwise inaction. One thing that we've seen throughout Acts is that the church frequently faces adversity. Like that's not new in the 21st century. It's very easy right now for the church in North America to feel like we're facing adversity. There are challenges. There are all kinds of things. But that's not new. It may be new for us, but it's not new in the grand scheme of the history of the church. And we've been reading Acts and we've seen all kinds of the adversity that Paul faced, that Peter faced earlier, the other apostles. Sometimes they, they were even killed, right? Like this is serious adversity. And so it's helpful perspective to keep in mind the challenges that the church faces in Scripture, throughout history, and today. And even at the end of Acts, as we get to this climax, like, Paul has been wanting to get to Rome for years. And as we get to this place in the book, he's there, but he still faces adversity. We still hear about his chains. He's, he can't just travel all over the city, can't go to the marketplace and 
try to recruit or reach out, do evangelism and, and build a church. Like he's got to stay. He's under house arrest. So he's getting what he wants. He's here. He's in Rome. But there's adversity. Even at the climactic moment in the whole document. Adversity. He's facing this challenge. And it kind of presents for us that, under, that, just pre, that theme that's present all the way through. That the gospel faces resistance. The gospel, the mission of the church faces challenges. And so it's fitting, I think, that at the end of Acts here, we get this vignette where even as the gospel advances to the very place that's been, it's been driving the whole book, there's still challenges. Those don't go away, do they? The challenges don't go away. And I think the key piece that Luke is wanting to present for us. He's been, he's been presenting it the whole time, but he presents it one more time in stark relief at the end of the, uh, not the letter, but the book here. He wants to exhort us, brothers and sisters, don't let resistance to the gospel undermine your resolve in mission. Don't let resistance to the gospel undermine your resolve in mission. That will happen. Just plan on it. The question is, will you be resolved? That's what we see with Paul. It's what we've seen throughout, the, like throughout Acts with the church. And it's the thing that we've got to wrestle with. So here's Paul. Finally arrives in Rome. But I, don't, I, would, I would imagine it didn't turn out the way he imagined it. It's important for all of us to realize Paul has been aching to get to Rome for years. Like this, I want to go to Rome thing isn't new for Paul. A few years before, so we're probably in early 60, not 1960, just 60 AD. And a few years before, Paul wrote a letter to the Romans. You probably read it. Well-known letter. Probably wrote that earlier in the year in 57. Right? So three, three and a half years before. And in Romans, he writes to them about his desire to visit them. And I want to read this to you because I want you to, I want you to get a sense of like Paul's passion and his commitment and his vision. Like Here's what he's after. This is Romans 15, starting in verse 22. This is the reason I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain. So here's Paul's plan. He wants to get to Spain because that's fresh territory. Like people aren't planting churches in Spain. He's worked all around the north side of the Mediterranean. The gospel's already in Rome. He hasn't been there yet, but he wants to go build some support, build some relationships, and then let that kind of be a base for the further mission westward to Spain. So that's what he says. I want to come to you I've wanted to, like this, this goes back years. So here's a letter written at least three years before he actually gets to Rome in chains. And he says, in that letter, this has been my desire for years. So even at this point, you've got Paul showing up in Rome in early 60. And for years and years, this has been the place he wanted to go. This was the one of the goals of his mission to get there and build a base for further mission west. You think he thought he'd show up in chains? Maybe he imagined that. 
at some point along the way. It probably began to come clear to him when he was in Caesarea in prison. But before that, it doesn't sound like in this letter he's expecting to show up a prisoner. He's planning to head further out. He doesn't expect his movements to be restricted. And so there's this, this pat, like, when was the last time you had a project that you worked on for three, four, five, six, seven or more years? There aren't that many things in our life that we work on for six or seven years. But this is where Paul is going. This is his plan. So he's writing this letter, and he kind of gives us a sense of what's going on. It helps us kind of line things up. At present, however, like I want to come to you, but verse 25, Romans 15. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints. Right? This is the, he's been going around collecting an offering from the Gentile churches. He wants to take it to Jerusalem because the, the, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem are struggling. He wants to offer a ministry to them. And his goal is, like he knows there's a lot of animosity between Jews and Gentiles, and maybe the support can build some bridges and make some peace and kind of knit this new early Christian movement together in a way that it maybe hasn't been before. So that's Paul's vision. That's his plan. That's what he's after. And he finally gets there. But his arrival is marked by adversity he wasn't planning on when he wrote Romans. The question is, does that adversity undermine his resolve to mission? Obvious answer, you can say it, no. He's committed, isn't he? Like, as soon as he lands, he starts meeting with people. He starts working through uh, meeting with fellow believers, meeting with unbelieving Jewish persons. And there's initial positivity, isn't there? Like, things are looking good initially. He, he kind of lands on the Italian peninsula, and believers from Rome send delegations to meet him. Here's something that you won't just know off the top of your head, probably. We're told in verse... Make sure I'm in the right verse here. Here we are. Verse 15, this is back in Acts now. Verse, chapter 20, verse 15. Believers from Rome, when they heard of us, came as far as the Forum of Appius. That's more than 40 miles from the city of Rome. Right, so they kind of land on the Italian peninsula. Word gets ahead. of Maybe there's a messenger who wrote ahead, kind of ahead of the, the party. Paul is coming with a Roman, uh, like as a Roman prisoner, so there's probably kind of, hey, we're coming, get some space ready, this is happening. Word gets to the believers, and they send a delegation more than 40 miles. Like, that sounds like a, that sounds positive to me, doesn't it? Like, we've got some missional partnerships that we're working on. Those are the same people who got Romans three and a half years ago or so. Another group comes as far as three taverns. That's a little kind of community that grew up about a little, little more than 30 miles from Rome. So again, like, like if you had to walk 40 miles to meet up with Paul, that's not a small investment of time and energy, is it? So we're thinking, man, this is, this could go well. Like he, Paul may have restricted movements, but there are people who are interested in what he's working on. And we could, like we, there's, Potential for fruit. Pastors love potential for fruit, don't we? Like we want to see how this, we think this could work. He gets to Rome and he meets with a Jewish delegation. More positive news. He says, hey, you know, I'm here in chains because the big guys up in Jerusalem 
didn't accept my gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Jewish leaders, these are, these are unbelievable, like non-Christian Jewish leaders in Rome, they say, well, we haven't heard anything about that, which is a good sign because it probably indicates that the Jewish leaders in Rome, while they were willing to travel a few miles north to Caesarea to try to get Paul dealt with, the long journey to Rome, they didn't seem motivated to do that. So they haven't sent any charges ahead to try to get the Jewish delegates to go and press the prosecution against Paul. They haven't even heard of the conflict he had with the leader. That's a good sign. It sounds like maybe these false charges and kind of kangaroo court deals he's been dealing with, maybe that's over, at least for now. They do have questions about his gospel, though, don't they? They have heard of this sect, Christianity, the way, as it's called in Acts, and they say, we don't know much about it. We'd like to hear from you. Here's the one thing we do know about your Christianity, Paul, is everywhere we go, it's spoken against. So things are going well, positivity, believers coming out, traveling miles to see him, good like initial meeting with the Jewish leaders, doesn't sound like charges are being pressed here in Rome. However, everything we've heard about what you're doing with the way is like we've heard a lot of negative comments, right? We've heard a lot of negative comments. So we want to hear from you. Like we're not just prejudging, but we want to hear from you. So they decide to meet with him. They have to come to him because he's in chains. He's, he's, he's able to kind of stay in his own house. He's got to pay for that himself. Uh, but he's chained at the wrist to a Roman soldier. Imagine that, being chained at the wrist to someone for like two years. <laughs> and you need to go to the restroom or when you want to take a nap or it's time to go to bed. Like, that sounds complicated. But that's, like, that's where we live, right? You kind of get a sense for what Paul's up to. Again, his resolve for the mission is not undermined by the fact that he's got to spend an extended period of time chained to a Roman. For Paul, that's like mission opportunity, right? Like this guy probably wants to be unchained from Paul for all he had to hear about Jesus after those things. <laughs> it's kind of like, that's enough, Paul. Like, come on. So the Jewish leaders come back on a set day with a great crowd, we're told, like a whole bunch of folks. And here's where things begin to kind of get a little more negative. Like the adversity shows up here. There's resistance to what Paul's doing. Some of them believe, but others don't. So he preaches to the Jewish community, and there's kind of a mixed response, isn't there? There's resistance to the gospel. There's pushback. It's like, I don't know about this, Paul. Crucified Messiah? I've got, like, I'm pretty sure I know what a Messiah looks like, and death, like being dead, isn't part of the job description, right? Like, I don't know about that. And I know about the resurrection, Paul, but that's later. Like, not one guy first ahead of everybody else. So there's pushback, there's resistance, there's hardness in relationship to the gospel. The question is, for Paul, will the resistance he faces in Rome, and he's been dreaming about this for years. He wrote Romans in part to try to get like Jews and Gentiles who love Jesus at the same table. Like That's one of the several reasons he wrote it. And now he's here, and he's got a, he's got a good reception from the Gentiles, but the Jewish 
folks that he wants to incorporate into the life of the church are resistant. And if that's us, we might say like, well, what do we do now? Like this is our standard operating procedure. We go to the Jewish community and we preach the gospel and and now there's resistance. There's a mixed response. There's not a lot of excitement. In fact, they're just in conflict over the content of our gospel. And it would be very easy in that moment to get discouraged, wasn't it? wouldn't it? Like we talked about a few minutes ago. We've experienced that sort of thing. Like we do a ministry and we put a lot of energy into it. And then like three people show up. and We're, we're struggling with that, aren't we? Or we do this thing. We put all this energy into it. We give it our absolute best. We get up early. We stay up late. We, we do the, 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 the work that must be done. And then it just gets criticized. You've been in situations like that. And it's, it's very tempting to just say, all right, well, I got my Roman guard here. Forget it. I'm just going to go home. I thought I was going to show up in Rome and the gospel would be received, but it's not. So, oh, well. But that's not what Paul does, is it? That's not the sort of posture he models for us, is it? He doesn't let resistance to the gospel undermine his resolve in his mission. And so what does he say? He's, well, he's got, <laughs> Paul's never short on words. And he responds to the resistance by quoting Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed listen but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their eyes are hard of hearing, and they've shut their eyes so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. Paul gets resistance in one sector. He is resolved to persevere in his proclamation of the gospel. The good news of salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and you hear this conviction, they will listen. And then it ends. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. And you might be tempted to say, like, what a lousy ending. (laughs) What was Luke thinking? Well, probably, like, he's writing this in the couple of years Paul was in jail there, or in captivity there aren't over yet. Like, why doesn't he tell us the outcome of the trial? Well, maybe it hasn't happened yet when he finishes the doctrine. And like, what, what's going to happen to Paul? And what about like the gospel? And don't we get the end of the story? And it's just, it's kind of like the end. He preaches to the Jews. They don't like it. He says he's going to the Gentiles. And then you get this couple of verses of summary statement that's kind of like, okay, we're done. Next chapter or not. When we come to ourselves asking, or we come to Luke saying, what, like, what's the end of the story? 
What happens to Paul? What happens to the church? What happens here? I think Luke puts it this way because he wants to remember that this isn't Paul's story. Like, Acts isn't about Paul. Acts isn't about Peter. Acts isn't about Stephen or James. Acts isn't about the Jews. It's not about the Gentiles. Acts is about Jesus. Acts is about Jesus. And it's always been about Jesus. Like, we don't get the end of Paul's story here, hardly because it may not have happened yet, but especially because it's not really about Paul. Paul's mission, his ministry, his story is not ultimately about him. It's ultimately about the resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the one who at the beginning of this whole book said, you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You're going to carry my story. And so here we are. Discovering how Jesus works. And how the Lord Jesus Christ brings the good of His perfect love to every family on earth. And so we got Paul kind of giving the Jews this harsh word. I mean, it, it feels very unkind, doesn't it? He's basically saying your spiritual senses, you're deaf and you're blind. It may be helpful to know that if you read through Isaiah, like that kind of language comes up multiple times. And it also comes up multiple times. It comes up in Isaiah in the context of idolatry. So there's a few scenes, one in particular, where Isaiah kind of says, hey, I see your little idol you carved up over there. Um, and I see it's got some ears and some eyes, but you pray to it, and I'm guessing it doesn't hear you. Because after all, it's, a, it's like a log that you, you use that half to cook your dinner, and this half you worship. So those little ears you carved into the side of it, and the, like it doesn't see, your God can't see you, he's blind. Your God can't hear your prayers, he's deaf. And there's kind of a connection there, isn't there? Right? You worship a God who can't see or hear, and you can't see or hear. Your hearts have grown dull. He's basically accusing them of idolatry, isn't he? If you don't recognize that Jesus is the answer to the promises to Abraham, if you don't realize that Jesus is God showing up, if you don't realize that Jesus is the Messiah who reigns over all things and sits on the throne of heaven, then your distraction isn't just distraction it is a spiritual insensitivity that is the consequence of false worship. You think they appreciated that? So here's Paul meeting very serious resistance. And don't get Paul wrong. Like He cares about his kinsmen. He longs to see them trust Jesus and love Jesus. Whenever we hear Paul kind of blasting Jewish persons, it's, it's good to go read the beginning of Romans 9. Here's what Paul thinks about his Jewish kinsmen. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it by the, by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. 
They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. Listen to his passion. Paul is willing to go to hell if it means his ethnic kinsmen get saved. Anybody we'd be willing to say that about? So like the same guy who says, your hearts have grown dull, has given himself to imprisonment and captivity and danger and persecution because he longs to see these men and women love Jesus. He longs for it. So, what happens? God in His wisdom takes the hard-heartedness of His people and uses it as a catalyst to bring the gospel to the nations. Like the end of Acts is like a miniature Romans 9. Your hearts have grown dull. Now the gospel is going beyond the boundaries of Israel. Now it's come to us. And Paul says the Gentiles will listen. He's talking about us. We're the nations. Everybody outside of the borders of the ethnic people of Israel. But I think Acts offers us a warning here too, doesn't it? In the same way that Paul's longing in Romans 9, right? And, and it's, I think it's really helpful to read the end of Acts alongside Romans because it, like he finally got to the place where he sent the letter a few years ago. And there's similar ideas and thoughts and themes. And you can tell for years this has been rolling around in his head and in his heart and this, this longing, this passion for ministry and mission and all these things, right? But he sees that God is at work. And if, if Abraham's blood family doesn't accept the Messiah, then God's going to go beyond the boundaries. And in His wisdom, that's what He does. But there's a promise. I mean, there's a warning as well. It's implicit in Acts and explicit in Romans. And when we read this, these are things we need to think about. Like, for the Jewish people that Paul was engaged with, if he can say to them, your heart has grown dull, the gospel's going somewhere else. Do I need to hear that warning? Do you? Because in Romans 9, after he talks about how God has taken the hardness of Israel and brought the gospel to the nations, he says to the Gentile recipients in Romans, perhaps some of the same people who showed up at the Forum of Appius a few years later read this just a few years ago. He warned them, don't fall into that same unbelief. Because you get the same consequences if you do. Here's what he says, Romans eleven seventeen. If some of the branches were broken off, he's talking about Israel. Unfaithfulness means broken off. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, right? You didn't start out in Abraham's family, but by grace through faith in Jesus, you've been brought in. A wild olive shoot were grafted in their place. 
to share the rich root of the olive tree, right? Participating in the blessings of the promises to Abraham. Do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that's true. They were broken off. And then he says this, on this condition, because of unbelief. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand through faith. Now the translation makes this a little bit hard to grasp, but that unbelief and the word faith, same Greek root, it's just unbelief has a negative in front of it. So you might even, it's weird English, but you could say, you could put it this way. They were broken off because of unbelief, you stand through belief. They were broken off because of unfaith, you stand by faith, right? It's this sense of, of, of allegiance. It's this, like, I belong to Him. Whatever He wants, I'm His. It's not just like this mental, like, can I tick off the boxes on the creed? But, but, but Jesus has my fidelity. Or does He have my infidelity? And so this is what Paul is calling them to. He's saying, and if you, like, you know this, right? If you've read all of Romans, if you've read chapter 3, which is where most people stop, but we're reading to the end. If you've read chapter 3, then you know like, you're justified. He finds in your favor. You're forgiven and declared to be in the right on what condition? Faith. You stand by faith in Romans 11 is a summary of the end of Romans 3 and 4. You stand, by, you stand in God's presence. You stand justified. You stand uncondemned. Because you've trusted Jesus, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed, to do something for you that you could never do for yourself. You can't forgive your sins. You can't change your heart from stone to, to soft flesh that's moldable and malleable. Only Jesus can do that. And when you trust him, that, that is called faith. But that same faith can be withheld. And it doesn't mean you've taken your salvation and just sort of, give me that back, God. Paul says God is the one who cuts off. Doesn't he? I want to be pastoral. I don't want you guys going home thinking you've lost your salvation this afternoon. I tend to think if that's a concern, you probably are fine. Because what we have here isn't a bunch of people who are going, have I sinned so many times that Jesus has cut me off? What we have here are people who don't care about Jesus. Who just reject his authority in every way, shape, and form. They're not asking, like, does Jesus still love me? They're saying, Jesus who? I'm guessing you're here because that's not where you are. <laughs> Right? So this isn't a like, am I saved today and lost tomorrow kind of thing. This is a matter of, does Jesus have my fidelity? And Paul warns his Gentile recipients not to fall into the same trap that his kinsmen, the Jews, fell into. Don't become proud. Don't think the mission, like, like, don't get up in the morning and think, God sure is lucky to have me on his team, and what are they going to do without me?
because God doesn't need Matt O'Reilly. And you can fill in the blank with your name, your name. But he wants us. Which is better. Infinitely better. So we have a vision, don't we? We have a vision of a gospel for the nations at the end of Acts. Not because Paul is particularly special. Not because Peter can draw a crowd. Only because the resurrected, the crucified and resurrected Jesus has been exalted to the throne of heaven and there is governing and overseeing the ministry and mission of His kingdom through His church. And that vision, friends, comes with implications, doesn't it? We talk a lot about the Great Commission. Baptize. Teach. Teach them to obey. Teach who? The nations to obey everything I've commanded. Get up, go, baptize, teach. We talk a lot about the Great Commission, but I wonder how many times we stop to ask, what would it look like to actually fulfill the Great Commission? Anybody ask that question lately? Like, what would it act like? What would the world be like if we actually like did it? If we successfully taught the nations to obey everything Jesus commanded, take a minute and just try to imagine a world like that. Is that a world you'd like to live in? It's not the world we live in now. (laughs) But is it a world you'd like to live in? I think we kind of act like the Great Commission, somebody's probably said this before, is more like a great suggestion. Like Jesus is like, hey, I'll be back soon, and here's some things to keep you occupied in the meantime. Share your faith and do evangelism and go to church and give your offering and like, you know, teach people to obey me. They may or may not do it. But you get, like, I can't just have you sitting around for 2,000 years with nothing to do, right? So here's some suggestions. Nobody would say that, but we kind of treat it that way, don't we? Amen? <laughs> you don't want to say it, do you? We kind of treat it that way. But what if Jesus was serious? Because it seems to me, on every page, not only of the Old Testament, but the New, you've got people like Paul saying, I'm called to bring about the obedience of the nations. Says it at the beginning of Romans, says it again at the end. And then you've got Luke, who spent a lot of time with Paul, telling us at the end of Acts, the nations will listen. And now we're in Rome and we have access to them. What if Jesus was serious? What if Luke is serious? What if Jesus isn't just making suggestions? What if He is giving commissions and commandments? Brothers and sisters, we are not biding our time. We're not just sort of 
putting up with the frustration, the adversity, the resistance. We're not just putting up with all that sort of thing to busy ourselves until the Lord comes back next week or next year maybe. I'm put a little something in perspective for you. Every generation since the first century has thought Jesus was coming back pretty soon. Or at least some people in every generation. How many of them were right? Zero. Not one. What do you think our odds are of being right? We'd be the first! So imagine something with me, right? Imagine Jesus actually does want a world where everyone honors Him with their life. Crazy idea, I know, right? But imagine it. Just imagine it for a minute. Imagine that Jesus actually does expect Matt and Willie and Ted and Flip and Mike and Val and all of us to teach people to obey everything He said to do. Would we reconsider our schedules? Would we reconsider our priorities? Would we reconsider the way we structure the mission of the church? Would we take resistance to the gospel in a different light? What if Jesus was serious when he commanded us to teach everyone to obey everything he commanded? And what would the world look like? We've asked the question. This is a long-term project, by the way, but put yourself out 500 years or 1,000 years or 10,000 years. Like, what would the world look like if the church starts teaching the nations to obey everything Jesus commanded? Like, if we get off that, hey, let's just preach the gospel a little bit, and maybe Jesus will come back next week, and we won't have to worry about who the next president is and all that kind of stuff, right? Like, put that on the shelf. And we said, you know, what if we disciple our children and our community? And what if we just keep doing that, right? Plow in the same direction for a long time. What will happen? Does it grow? Does the kingdom expand? Of course it does. Brothers and sisters, the Great Commission is a pyramid scheme. It starts out with 12 guys, grows to 70 here before too long, and now, a few decades later, Paul is in Rome, and the thing has grown there ahead of him. And over the last 2,000 years, the church has grown. The kingdom has advanced. People who didn't know Jesus know Jesus. And we get distracted by the resistance and the adversity. We get so stressed out about politics, forgetting that it's our job to disciple good politicians. We get worried about the stuff that, I was going to say radio, but who even listens to radio anymore, like podcasts and iTunes. We get worried about what our kids may hear in the media. Songs that are violent or dishonoring to other human beings. Like, what if we could disciple people who produce God-honoring art? And I'm not talking about that cheesy Christian knockoff stuff where we kind of grab whatever the pop artists are doing and try to make a Christian version of it. That's not what I'm talking about. Rich, beautiful, Jesus-honoring art. Is that a world you want to live in? That's the world Jesus has called us to create. It's the world that Paul began creating in Acts. 
And now he's passed a baton. He passed it to the leaders of the early church, like Timothy. And they passed it on to others. And we could go down through the centuries and name faithful men and women who've received the baton to honor Christ and build His kingdom under His authority. And it's gone down century after century, all the way to people like John Wesley and Charles Wesley and Francis Asbury, who brought the Methodist movement across the Atlantic to North America. And they passed it on, and they passed it on, and now the baton is held to us. And the question for us, brothers and sisters, when we face resistance or whether we face momentum, the question for us is, will we resolve to take the Great Commission and the vision we get at the end of Acts seriously? No mere suggestion. Will we take that baton and put smiles on our faces and be resolved in resistance and preach the word and eat at the table and sing the songs and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with full confidence that the one who reigns in heaven rules on earth regardless of what anyone else thinks. And in that is our confidence and commission to disciple the nations. Will you take that baton? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.